0: Welcome to Let's Talk OA, the podcast series on all things osteoarthritis. This space is designed for healthcare professionals to gather and learn from key world-renowned experts that dedicate their day to day in helping the lives of those living with OA. I'm Simon Fleming, your host for the series and a trainee orthopedic surgeon in the United Kingdom. Hello to everyone, some loyal listeners, that by now like to stay up to date with our channel and welcome to any new listeners joining us for the first time. As you may know from our last episode, we wanted to continue the conversation with Dr. Andre from Argentina, who's an orthopedic and and trauma surgeon, and Dr. Juan Carlos Cajigas from Mexico, who's a a rheumatologist and an internal medical doctor as well. Welcome back to both of you good morning everyone so this feels very much like a to be continued type thing like a cliffhanger during our last episode we commented on on all the different issues that impact on the right timing for surgery this procedure can be life-changing but sometimes the when is not clear the timing is not clear and, and some surgeons prefer to bring surgery to the table early on whereas others do you prefer to rule out other options and go up that kind of you know hierarchy of treatment modalities? We got to, to comment on this as well as your agreement on a patient-to-patient but patient-centered approach, different clinical and treatment measures taken to try and delay total knee replacement surgery until it's appropriate. And that's where we left off. We determined the right time for surgery. So today I'm going to jump right in uh, to ask what I think would come next, which is, okay. surgeries, the conversation is happening. So what are the complications in the context of this surgery?
1: Well, I would say that there are two types of complications. Immediate complications and immediate, late complications. Immediate complications are those produced by some complication which no surgery is ever free of. Firstly, the inflection of a prosthesis, which is a very severe complication that can be treated, but is still a very severe complication. There are also other issues, such as periprosthetic fractures, luxations, in the case of hips prosthesis, patellofemoral disorders, in the case of knee prosthesis, and so on. In other words, these are complications that can occur in the first few years, but there are still unexpected complications, that is, in the vast majority of cases, these situations do not occur. Then we have the late complications, such as the loosening, and this is the point we were just discussing with Juan Carlos about the useful life, both for hip and knee prostheses. Generally, they last in the order of 15 to 20 years, depending on when the surgery is performed. In other words, we expect that a patient will probably have to get another, and other after that period of time. Again, I insist, after working 30 years as a doctor, I know some hip-operated patients who have been progressing favorably for 26, 27 years now. Of course, they are very long-lived patients whose use of their joints is quite limited at the moment.
2: Well, obviously, Andres is an orthopedic surgeon, so he's the expert on this, right? And as he has already said, all these complications are very important. I would just like to add that it's very important to be very aware during the perioperative phase of a complication that tends to, tends to occur, which is thromboembolism. So some obese patients may have coagulation or platelet disorders, etc. And we must be very alert to this complication too. Obviously infection, septic arthritis, as he has already mentioned. Prosthetic infection is extremely serious when it occurs and well, he has already talked about surgical complications such as displacements, loosening etc. etc. We also must take into account that patients who are treated with biphosphonates or with some treatment for osteoporosis also tend to have a slower surgical recovery and this must also be taken into account as a complication that may occur during the surgical act.
1: Using what Juan Carlos has just said, I would like to emphasize a point that I didn't mention before, which is thromboembolism. I think it's very helpful to emphasize this point because, in fact, today all post-operative protocols for hip, knee, spine, and other pathologies must include the so-called thromboembolism prophylaxis, and today they are very effective, very useful drugs, but I think it's really important to emphasize what Juan Carlos has just said about that point. In fact, we also use other options to reduce bleeding, such as trinemaxic acid. In other words, a lot has evolved regarding this kind of surgery, and the safety parameters in the post-operative period have improved considerably. So it's worth clarifying and emphasizing the importance
0: of this topic. And in in case it does happen, what would you say to patients that still have pain or or limitations after surgery?
2: I think that at that point, if the surgical intervention is well performed, performed by an orthopaedic surgeon and Dr. Silberman will correct me later on if I'm wrong, I believe that the possibility of persistent pain or discomfort, if we are talking about a well-performed implant or prosthesis surgery, should be minimal and, well, nothing that we cannot manage without conventional analgesics or anti-inflammatory drugs for short periods of time. And in some cases, indeed, we can also make use of some more powerful analgesics, such as opiates. But in general, I truly believe that this persistence
1: of pain and such should be minimal. Well, I'm going to comment on two issues. Firstly, in 2000, the year when the best film of the century, the best song of the century, the best… everything that had been successful throughout the century was chosen. Orthopedics was no exception either. They looked for the most successful operation of the century and, unanimously, the total hip prosthesis was chosen because it really saved an enormous number of lives initially, and secondly, it meant an improvement in the quality of life. And the second point I want to make, it has already become very popular to say that the hip prosthesis is like a mother and the knee prosthesis is like a mother-in-law. Why? Because the hip prosthesis always develops greatly, It goes well, it's encouraging, the patients are happy, as well as the surgeon. Whereas the knee prosthesis can be a little troublesome sometimes. Obviously, I don't want to speak ill of my mother-in-law right now, by no means. But definitely sometimes there is also residual pain left in the knees, which doesn't prevent us from thinking that it's a successful surgical intervention with very good results, really. The statistics show about a 2% complication rate in the hip, and a 3% complication rate in the knee. These are still very low figures, so I reiterate, they are successful operations, with very good results, that's why we continue to perform them, but, as they also say, despite this very low percentage, when it comes to a patient it means 100% for them, and that's why we doctors are very attentive to any complication, to any residual pain in order to try to alleviate
0: it. Okay. You know, I, I was expecting maybe more discrepancies between the different specialties, but but actually you, you agree on a lot of areas. What do you think about surgery in older patients who have lots of comorbidities?
2: I did want to make a comment on this. We have to take into account what happened in the first years of the last century or in the Even in the last years of the last century. Older people were considered to be 60 years of age or older. Nowadays, a person of 60 is totally active, totally strong, totally active from a physical and mental point of view. And the age of what used to be considered an old person has been postponed. Now, a 65, 70 year old may not even be as old as they were in the last century. That's what I wanted to say. So I do think that in this aspect, obviously the surgical aspect has also changed. Now, operating on a 65-year-old feels like what operating on a 50-year-old used to be like. Probably if we have a patient who is too old, in very bad health conditions due to comorbidities, heart failure, severe diabetes, cirrhosis, etc., etc., or in patients who are also very old, have minimal physical activity, and are ready to be in a wheelchair for life, then that should also make the surgeon decide whether or not it would be worthwhile to fit such a person with a prosthesis if they no longer have an adequate quality of life. That's my point of view. I wonder what Andres has to say about this.
1: I would like to give you the definition of an elderly or old patient, which I think is very accurate. It's anyone who is more than 20 years older than you are. That is to say, that is a definition, and that is what makes the concept of an elderly person change as one gets older. So I fully agree with Juan Carlos. And I also agree that we have very similar views and we don't disagree, simply because we both work in the medical field we do the same science, and although we may have some views related to our specialities, the truth is that we are both still doctors. And I emphasize once again that the age of the patient doesn't concern me too much as a defining factor. That is, if, as it has been said here, I have a patient who is 80 years old, but who plays golf, who has, who is autonomous, who can do his activity and who is also a perfect candidate for prosthesis, and at the same time, what happened to me recently. An 86-year-old patient, who also lives alone, has no family, but she was totally fine on her own until six months ago. She started having hypnecrosis, started feeling very severe pain, ended up in a wheelchair, she couldn't even wash herself. Therefore, we initially considered she was a good candidate for an operation, until a cardiological study revealed that she had a very severe valvular heart condition So that was the end of the discussion. That patient isn't a candidate for an operation, because she has a high intraoperative life risk. Here I would like to remind you the first principle of medical ethics, which is primum non nocere, i.e. first do no harm. In other words, there is no chance that one can indicate surgery to a patient whose life risk is high during the operation. Therefore, if they are of advanced age and fit, they can be operated on. And if they are young or old, but not fit, we never think of a surgical option
0: sure but but what about the patients how do they tend to respond to the idea of this of, of this surgery of the intervention do some prefer to wait until the pain and limitation becomes you know unbearable do you do you generally advise patients to openly seek a second opinion or h- how do you approach a patient who in your opinion needs surgery but you know, is, is averse to the idea.
2: Um, I think some patients do prefer to wait. Some patients are afraid, so obviously we have to guide them, lead them step by step and make it clear when we consider it's appropriate. As Andres said, the patient is the one who will finally make the decision on their own. But yes, some patients do prefer to be led step by step to wait a bit so we can help them manage their pain, their weight loss, etc. or the things we have already mentioned. From my perspective and as I have already mentioned, age isn't a predominant factor in making the surgical decision, but rather pain physical disability and what we have already said about radiographic evaluation. I don't see the need if everything is going well and we as clinicians, rheumatologists, decide to send the patient to an orthopedist. I don't see the need for a second opinion because we are deciding, well, Clearly, we are sending the patient to a qualified orthopedist, who obviously we believe has the necessary aptitude to treat the patient properly. So, I practically
1: cast the idea of second opinions aside. Again, we agree with Juan Carlos on almost everything. But, let's say, it's not the same receiving a patient who has already been referred by a colleague, for example, a rheumatologist who has gone up the staircase we talked about at the beginning, has undergone the treatments, and at a certain point the situation makes obvious that surgery is required. When that patient arrives at the clinic, he already knows that he has to undergo surgery and things are easier. It's different for the patient who consults us due to hip or knee pain, who has not yet undergone all the treatments, but who has let the disease progress significantly, And then when an operation is indicated, because there are no other options or alternatives, the patient, as Simon has just said, um, is not very happy and is always afraid and everyone asks for non-surgical options. That's why, as we said, the usual procedure is to try non-surgical options, what we call conservative treatment. However, there are patients who often come to the clinic with a borderline situation and they have to undergo surgery those patients are a little bit astonished to hear that, that option. And, although it's true that one has the peace of mind of experience so as not to need a second opinion, sometimes the patient, at least in my experience, needs to hear a certain unanimity of criteria, where all the colleagues there may be, one, two, and it's not convenient to see many more. All agree on the surgical indication, So, when we have a patient who is hesitant or who asks us about options, such as, for example, acupuncture or alternative medicines, we know that prosthesis is the only alternative. We encourage a second opinion so that the patient understands and is convinced that the best thing to do is to resolve the issue surgically. So, we consider that listening to the patient is key, to understand their expectations and their fears, because that is the patient who comes to surgery best when they are convinced and when they know perfectly well that there are no alternatives and that this is the best option.
0: And, you know, addressing the elephant in the room, considering the the current pandemic situation, we've had wave after wave that has affected countries in different ways. How has COVID-19 situation changed your clinical practice and, and the way you follow up your patients?
2: It's very different in all countries depending on how the pandemic measures were taken or not, whether they were total restrictions or not. For example, in Mexico many hospitals were converted into COVID hospitals, so there was no possibility from a medical point of view, from a public assistance point of view, to send patients for surgery. Operations came to a complete halt. And until now, say four or five months ago, this has changed because obviously we have entered what is called the green zone, where there are no longer so many COVID clinical cases and hospitalizations have dropped, so the hospitals have reopened in terms of public health care medicine. In terms of private medicine, it was also a problem to try to operate on patients because Obviously, even all private hospitals had, well, an administrative process in which certain steps had to be taken to be able to hospitalize the patient, such as doing the PCR test, certifying that the patient didn't have COVID, having an evaluation, even by the medical management and a broader assessment, not only by the internist, rheumatologist and orthopedist, but even administrative issues to be able to decide on a surgical intervention. However, I would like to say that from my point of view, virtual medicine helped me a lot because virtual medicine had to be used in all these cases to try to limit pain, to improve functionality and to treat these patients while surgical treatment wasn't available. It's not ideal, I think, because nothing can replace a good interrogation, a good physical examination, such as assessment of movement, gait, joint instability, degree of inflammation, pain scale, etc. So face-to-face medicine, well, without a doubt, and from my point of view, is still essential. But I insist. Virtual medicine was necessary during those times. At least that was the situation in my country. I don't know what Dr. Silberman has to say about this topic.
1: Well, due to shortage of time, I'm not going to expand on the situation in Argentina, and I ratify what Juan Carlos has said. For many months, the entire population were in lockdown for almost seven months straight. We, the doctors, were able to go outside, but the general population was locked up for seven months straight, from March to October. So everything was pretty hard, actually. Now, we learned a lot during the pandemic in the changes that could happen. First of all, we saw patients who, of course, couldn't be operated on and who needed to undergo surgery. In fact, they were scheduled for surgery in March, April, and we couldn't operate on them. And those were patients who stayed at home who didn't move to avoid pain, so there was a huge increase in joint stiffness, severe muscle weakness, because they didn't move. They halted their activities. Therefore, by the time they were able to leave, we found that the population had deteriorated significantly physically. Of course, virtual consultations allowed us to do conservative management using medication, but we were very limited. We began to use some options to improve our patients' condition since we couldn't operate on them due to surgical limitations. Without a doubt, fortunately, in our country, in Argentina, we have been catching up, and the truth is that we have operated a lot since March-April 2021, to date, and we have helped the patients. However, without a doubt, the acute stage of the pandemic was a very difficult period for all of us, but it gave us a lot of things to learn.
0: Any final thoughts or take-home messages for our audience today before we wrap it all up?
2: Well, I am an internist and a rheumatologist, and obviously I will always prefer the systematic sequential management of each patient before opting for surgical treatment. Obviously, I insist each case must be individualised, and of course I think that the most important thing is, finally, when we call an orthopaedic surgeon, The surgical treatment should be carried out obviously by by a trained
1: orthopedic surgeon with an unquestionable ethical and professional attitude. Orthopedics and traumatology are clinical and surgical specialities at the same time. Therefore, as specialists, we have the obligation to offer the patient the least aggressive or least invasive therapeutic option, starting with the clinical view. However, When the situation worsens and conservative management isn't enough, that is when surgery is mandatory. I believe that Dr. Cajigas has also summed it up perfectly, so we agree. Moreover, we are all doctors, and that is why we really believe that teamwork, multidisciplinary studies with rheumatologists, clinicians, cardiologists, etc. are fundamental and in the best interest of our patients, which is our profession's ultimate goal. I spoke a while ago about the first principle of the ethics of medicine, primum non nocere. but let me remind you of the second and third, secondum justum, tertium beneficium, that is to say, in the second place, be fair to our patients, and fundamentally, beneficium, benefit, always benefit, always think of the patient's benefit
0: both of you i can't thank you enough thank you so much for your time today it's been great listening to your opinions your points of view and it is it's a, it's a sensitive issue we know that it that it's pretty hard to to generalize but what has surprised me is is actually we have more consensus than than perhaps many expect thank you for joining us on let's talk oa a podcast series brought to you by laboratories expand science we'll see you next time as we continue to learn more about osteoarthritis.